Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Let's look at Ephesians 4.17, the verse that is present uh, on your handouts tonight. This I say therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. How do the Gentiles walk? We're going to learn a little bit about that tonight. It's going to be the theme. Who's a Gentile? Uh, we are. What is this? Gentiles or who? Non-Jews. Is Paul using the word Gentile in an ethnic way in the book of Ephesians? No. He's using it in a heathen versus Christ follower way. Okay, And so that's an interesting term, but how do those who don't follow Jesus walk, and how do those who follow Jesus walk? That's what we're going to begin to answer. And remember, if you, if you allow me, we're going to keep pouring a little bit of cement tonight, and then next week we're going to get into putting something on top of it so it's a little more practical. But so there's a couple of uh, things I want you to do. I asked you last week to read Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, and I'm sure many of you memorized it, and you have it ready for recitation. But, so you're such overachievers, I'm ready for this. People, I'm being funny right now, so relax. All right? Did you read Ephesians 4, 1 through, 6, 1 through 16? And here's the question if you did. If you didn't, get your Bibles open to Ephesians. Take a peek at it. And I'd like you to just discuss at your table for just a few moments. What did you learn about the purpose of the church from Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 16, which I I believe is one of the richest passages in all the scripture about why we exist today, why Jesus left us here. So take a peek at it, skim your eyes over it. If you did read it, I asked you to, like devotionally, just take some time and read through that, give it a good reading. What did you learn about the purposes of our community from it? Just talk at your table for a few moments after you've reviewed it. Okay, from your discoveries, just a couple of tables. Give me what you would take, uh, corporately, what you would take. What are the advantages of being a part of a Christian community slash church? What are the purposes and what do we gain from it? Because the good news is, God never asks us to do anything that solely serves ourselves, And He never asks us to do anything that doesn't benefit us from having done it, right? So the first thing is that God never gave us a gift we're meant to keep. Every gift He gives us is meant to be given away. And in the giving away, we get more blessing back than we deserve. So having from that, and I didn't give you a whole lot of time, but from your tables, anybody want to volunteer? And say, we thought this, we thought this, we thought this. Does anybody want to do that out loud? Okay, we'll go back here and then over here. So unity, right? And you can't do unity solo, even though most of us try. Okay, right here. Uh, it went over to Philippians uh, two two. Then make my joy complete by having by, by being like minded, having the same love. Being one in spirit and purpose. Yeah, so in Philippians, Paul takes that same concept and says, here's the fruit of it. It's unity, not only that, but it is one purpose, one mind. Paul would say over and over, there's one faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism, and one Father above all, in all, and through all. Okay? And also by maturity in him, in this, you, you know, you, fit, you 
second nature or first nature. Yeah. Second nature that you, if somebody cuts you off in traffic or whatever, you just slough it off. You don't revolt back. Okay? You don't? Okay. We, we, I mean, we, we shouldn't or we don't? Okay. If you didn't hear the conversation, Miss Irma said that when you're in the body and someone cuts you off in traffic, you just let it go. So I need a church desperately. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> Yes. Okay. We need to respond in love. I'm 100% believing you. Yes. 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 It's my world and everyone's in my way. Uh, Who else? Yeah. Well, I'm an elementary teacher and so I think visually and concrete. But anyway, so how you were talking about our jobs within the church, you know, our giftedness and whatever. If I'm a finger... And I am, but I am out here doing, trying to do my own thing, and I am not attached to the hand. I am not going to get anything done. Absolutely, yeah. We we are never ever better solo serving Christ than we are in uh, unity and together working on a purpose. It's a cause. You'll notice that here, what we say is our job is to help God's people find completeness in Jesus. You can see where we took that from. It's right from verse thirteen, right in the heart of the passage. Now, why did I have you, why did I ask you last week to read uh, Ephesians 4, even if you forgot, to have you read Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, is so we could launch into the purposes of this study is, how do we not walk like Gentiles? Well, the first thing I want to point out is you don't walk independently. Gentiles walk alone. Americans and Gentiles walk independently. And we pride ourselves on it. It is a common theme today, and this is not a preacher looking for attendance. It's a common theme today, and it's becoming more predominant in our culture. I don't need the church. I can do the God thing on my own. That is a lie of Satan. That doesn't mean you attend church because that's better. No, no, you actually become a part of the church. Attending church is not biblical at all. Being involved in the church, engaged in your gifting, is absolutely Biblical Coming on Sunday and sitting for 60 minutes and leaving, is it's about as helpful as going to the dentist and never brushing your teeth. All you're going to do is drive up a big bill and have a lot of pain in between six-month checkups. That's the best analogy I could come up with. But this is not... I don't want you to hear me embittered. I want you to understand if I really want to be a pastor, uh, it's kind of like when I was coaching football and you try to teach boys how to take a tackle, the reason you teach them that is not because you want to be some hard-nosed coach, but what do you want to teach them to do? You want to teach them to be able to take the hit and not die, to protect themselves. My wife came home and said, you're going to be mad at me? And I said, what? She said, I signed Alex up for gymnastics. I don't know if she expected me to pack my bags and leave, but I looked at her and I said, good. And she's like, really? I said, good. She goes, you know, most of the class is girls. I'm like, it's okay. And she's like, really? She said, why? And I said, because when he plays football, he'll know how to take a hit. He'll know how to roll. <laughs> well, he didn't play football after junior high. He played soccer. My wife was like, I want to play soccer because it's safer than football. The girl had never seen a soccer match. <laughs> he got hit harder without pads than he ever would have been hit with pads. Flying 100 miles an hour, getting flipped in the air, landing on his shoulders and his back and everything else. And I'm going, yeah, where's the helmet? But that kid could take a hit and roll, and he learned all that in gymnastics. You see, there was a purpose behind protecting so what I say as a pastor is this, the first lesson we've got to learn from the book of Ephesians is if you go solo, you are Satan bait. Listen to what Peter says. He looks to isolate from the group. He'll go for the weakest and the isolated. Yes, sir. 
I've got a little thing here in my Bible that says, God wants you to be in regular, close fellowship with other believers so you can develop the skill of loving. Love will not be learned in isolation. I love it. So God puts us in the church to learn to love, which means it could sometimes be difficult in the church to love. Difficult everywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we preachers like to... Go ahead. I also think that, in principle, you know, we were created for relationship. Yes. And the church serves oh, yeah. to create relationships. Yeah, the only part of creation God said is not complete yet is a, a single man. Right. And it wasn't about marriage. It was about companionship. Yep. Uh, so I asked you to be thinking about how is, how is a relationship with Jesus like our three metaphors last week? Marriage, a builder, and a walk. So just have a, a brief minute or two conversation at your table. How have you experienced being a follower of Jesus and walking behind Christ and following Him? How is that like a marriage? How is that like building on something? And how is that like a walk, an experience with somebody? Just spend a few moments sharing how you feel those metaphors are true for you or not true for you. How's it like a marriage? How is being a follower of Jesus like a marriage? What, what are similar experiences? Pardon? Yeah, it, it requires time. Commitment. How would you give me an example of how it's an ex, a commitment's expressed? Yes. Yeah, commitment of loyalty. Yeah, good. I always think of marriage as uh, two people filling in, filling in each other's spaces, you know. Sure. Complete. And your walk in faith uh, fills that God-shaped hole and, uh, you know, fills yeah. in those spaces. Yeah, and we want to be careful because the Bible doesn't say you have to be married to be whole. But there's something that takes place when you're married that brings a dimension to you that the other person... That's why normally you marry your opposite. Because you see strengths in them that you don't have and it's attractive until they start wanting to fix... Never mind. So, but you, you get the whole point, right? Is, is marriage an easy experience when you first start it? No, that's what I was going to say. It's, it's not always easy. No. And selflessness comes... Yeah, good. Selflessness is required? On... On both ends. Yeah. And we have a great example of that. Yep. With that. You can be yourself when you're with your spouse. Sure. They know the real you and stay anyway. You can say what you like, what you don't like. Yeah. And the first time you lived with your spouse, if you've had this experience, the first week was awesome because it was a honeymoon. You were on vacation. You were spending other people's money. And then you came back to life. And they squeezed the toothpaste container in the middle. And you thought, oh my. You have to learn to live with someone who's different than you. Okay? How is it like building? This is a little more abstract for us, but there's some key principles. He set a foundation. There's something unique about the concept there. The, the, uh, I have a great picture of Michael DeFazio when we went to uh, Israel. There's still one of the chief cornerstones of the temple that still exists. It's one of the few pieces that's original. And Michael is what? He's like 6'1 or 6'2 and skinny as a rail and he's got these long arms. And he spanned himself like this against the uh, cornerstone at the temple in Jerusalem. And he was maybe one-third of the length of that. And it was as tall as him. 
It was a stone that was probably, well, I would imagine that stone was probably 12 or 14 feet long, at least 14 feet high, and who knows how deep it went into the wall. When they pour a foundation, there's a key principle. I don't know this. Dan McGrew taught me this. You can only build on the foundation that exists. You can't extend outside of it. If you extend outside of it, what will happen to that building? It will crush under its own weight. So builders know this. Are we supposed to learn something from the fact that Christ is the foundation and we build upward on what he set in order rather than us deciding what should be added to it? So he's not going to ask us to put an Anderson room on his church. He's going to say, build on what I gave you to build on and watch what happens. Paul also, you might remember we talked about this, I believe, last week, that Paul said that what we offer him in our building will be fire-tested and some of it's going to vanish, right? It's going to disappear. But what is built on the foundation will last. And, and the builder's okay, but the builder will have sacrificed ample time and energy on something they were never asked to do. How is it like a walk? Paul's favorite expression for being a Christian. It's a daily thing. Yeah, good. It makes sense in their culture, right? Because how did they get around? They walked. They would walk a, a long ways. Uh, we were told when we were there that they would average eight miles a day walking. But they, there were no roads. There was no safety. There were no cops. There were no uh, Casey's to stop and get an iced tea on the way. They went from village to village. And when they arrived in a village that day, they had to rely on someone like you to open their home and let them spend the night there and have a meal. And they would return the favor to the next visitor they met. Does that sound a lot like Christianity? Practicing hospitality, looking around you to see who's around you and who you can care for? So it is a common daily experience. Aren't we grateful that he didn't call it a jog? I am. My entire life, I've only run when I've had to. And normally, because a coach got mad at me, mouthing off and said, Christian, run. So people are like, how fast can you run a mile? Fast as the coach made me. How many of you are runners? It's okay, you can confess it. <laughs> All right, do you enjoy running or do you learn to enjoy running? Learn. You learned. Good, because I, I thought it was just me. Okay, last thing. <laughs> and here's the real discussion I want to get to. What we just did is reviewed last week. And I think those of you who have taken a class with me, you have to tolerate the fact that for us to know where we're going, we have to know where we've been. So each week we're going to keep snapping these pieces together until we build what we're supposed to build. The question I want you to have a discussion at your table, which is about tonight's topic, and I'm going to, we're going to do a real Bible study. So even though all the, the scriptures are on your notes, if you have your physical Bible with you or the tool you study in, it'd be better to use that tonight. So you can see with your own eyes on that page what we're talking about. But here's the question I want to ask you. When Paul writes a letter to a church, I told you this last week, he's always looking for something in that church. He's giving attaboys and attagirls to the church for certain things. And we're going to talk about what that is tonight. But here's the question I want everyone to ponder and have a brief discussion on. If, and this could get raw, and we're, we're ready for it. But if, if Paul would write a letter to Christ Church of Orinoco, what would he thank God for about us? And what would he mention were our strengths? Now, this is not a preacher doing a backdoor effort to say anything about me or the staff. It's about our community. If Paul would write a letter to us and he would give us an attaboy or an girl for what takes place in this community of faith, what would he say he's thankful for? Go ahead and talk about that at your tables. And then I would like one person at each table to kind of be the scribe. And when we have a moment to declare it, then you just be the spokesman for the table briefly. Okay. So... 
I hope this isn't presumptuous. There's a purpose to our exercise. But we'd just like to go and, and maybe we'll start left side of the room here and just have whoever the spokesman is. What did you guys conclude? Paul would look at our church and say, of all the messed up things you got, here's a couple things you're, you're starting to figure out. Uh, by no means do I think we're complete at any level. So, pardon? We'll start my left. Some of the common things that we put were uh, that the church is generous, that there's lots of ways to dig deeper or connect, very welcoming, uh, friendly, large impact on community, and speak the truth. I should have just given your table it. Sorry, I could just. No, that's okay. Um, we said a lot of that stuff, but I think this church has a lot of resources and it uses it in godly ways, Christ like ways. So if you have, if you've, if yours is already up here and you've got a couple extra, we'll just keep, we'll keep building. Back table. I know you're assuming you can read my writing, and I'm very grateful for that. So yours are up here? Or no? Okay. that one to me. <laughs> Flexible. Well, you know, when you come, when you're a senior, you come from back backgrounds. Okay? Now, you, you're flexible when you accept the fact that we bring drink into the auditorium. Yeah. Or we wear short shorts and shower clothes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to leave flexible up here. <laughs> Baseball hats. I'm just, you know what? Yeah, it's just yeah. I like the fact that things that don't matter don't have to matter. Before I even knew about this church. And had a conversation. First thing anybody told me, the, the number one reoccurring theme when I called about this church, when they were dumb enough to call me, was they have made kids a priority. I think that's... I love being a part of a church that does that. Back table? They hadn't gotten around to electing a spokesman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I just put leaders willing to lead? And I can yeah. invest that. And then there's uh, biblical teaching for 
Okay. Center table. Yours are up there. And opportunities for growth. It seems like there are a lot They're up there? Okay. Christ-centered, Bible-based church. Oh, I, I've no, it's okay. I'm running, I'm running out of board space. Yeah. Pardon? Support of our missionaries. Okay. I'm trying to lump some of the similar themes together. Middle table? You're up there? Back table? Okay. Good. Middle table to my right. Balanced, okay. I'm sorry. Okay. So, every age. Uh, I think we have a quite of an outreach too with our media. Yeah, and I think I like the word impact because either having an impact or you're not, no matter how it's distinct. Yes. Uh huh. Okay, I'm going to read these so the people that weren't, didn't make tonight's class will see what we put on the board. So, we believe that Paul would say he sees our attempts to be generous, that we want to dig deeper, that we use our resources to help others, not just to grow the Sam's Club out here, that we're leaders, our leaders are willing to take the risk to lead, that the worshiping of Jesus, we try really hard to make that why we gather. Uh, there are opportunities for people to grow. We reach out to the generations want the Bible to be the center. We're accepting of others. We're friendly. We're welcoming. We try to have an impact, make a difference. We want to speak the truth, be flexible to focus on the most important things, our kids, and discipleship. Stewardship. Stewardship. Uh, All right. So what I want to do is is we had stewardship up here, which is really kind of what Paul would ask the churches to do. I want to take you through the books that Paul wrote to churches in the New Testament. I want to show you what is found, and then to be able to break that down the next three weeks as to what it looks like in a real person's life. But remember, we can't isolate these things from us. You're contributing to all of our welfare with these things, or you're contributing to nobody's welfare with these things. And what we've learned in Ephesians 4 is that God gave no gift to us to be kept. Every gift is meant to be given away. It's to be offered in community, to bless community. Some will receive it, and some won't. So let's begin with, with the letter to First Thessalonians. Now, I'm going to give you some factoids, some Bible facts that may win you some points on Jeopardy if that show still exists. Galatians is probably, Michael and I will 
talk about this regularly. We're pretty certain that uh, Mark was the first gospel written in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was probably the first. And we know that John was the last. When Matthew and Luke fell in, probably Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John in my estimation. So when you see Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, uh, we, we believe, because we're linear thinkers, that must have been the first book in the New Testament. No. Galatians is probably the first letter that Paul wrote to a church. And what I'm going to tell you is not every letter he wrote to a church is as consistent as I hoped it would be, but you're going to see some trends here. Galatians was written to people that were trying to add something to Jesus. So, a man would come to Christ Church of Orinogo and say, I want to follow this Jesus, and we would say, great. So here's what it means to be loyal. Here's what it means to be a disciple. Here's what it means to sacrifice yourself on the cross for the kingdom of heaven. And now, you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you repent of your sins, and you're washed clean in water, baptized into Christ. Signifying the death, burial, and resurrection, you come out of that. Oh, and by the way, on Monday, stop by the office and we'll circumcise you. And Paul was like, huh? Jesus didn't say go in all the world, baptizing and teaching and circumcising. But the Jews said, no, no, you have to become Jewish to become a Christian. And Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians to say, nope. Jesus was Jewish enough for all of us. And by his sacrifice, he was the Passover lamb. And now all of us no longer Jew or Gentile. Right? So that's why what I'm going to show you in some of his letters aren't in all of his letters because some letters were written to a specific context. Like First and Second Timothy is not a letter to a church. Titus is not a letter to a church. Philemon is not a letter to a church. All right? The second letter that I think was written chronologically would have been First Thessalonians. Let's look at chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Paul begins most of his letters this way. Now let's take a little Bible quiz. See who knows the artifacts of history that help us understand. Why does Paul start most of his writings to churches with this opening anthem of who he is, who he's writing to, and what he's after? Why does he do that at the beginning? Pardon? That's how you would write a letter, but why would you write it in that fashion? Okay. It's, it, it could be about he's identifying who he was before, but actually there's a more practical reason that when I tell you, you're going to be like, ah. Oh. I'm not trying to trick you. I'm trying to help you understand the context of it. The reason that Paul always launches with the introduction of who he is, it was on a scroll. And how would they pull that open all the way to the bottom to find out who the letter's from? There was no envelope that, with the return address. So you do the salutation at the beginning so that a person could understand what it was. And these letters would have been read in churches. But don't picture Christ Church of Orinogo, second hour, with a bunch of people filling these blue chairs. Picture Mark Moreland's house with five couples from his neighborhood that are worshiping Jesus together. And I would come by and say, hey, the Apostle Paul sent this to me. He wants you guys to read it too. And Mark would read that letter to those people when they gathered on the Lord's Day to worship. And then they would pass it over to that table in their house group. And that's how these letters would pass on and on. So not everybody knew Paul, but those who knew Paul knew Paul. But those who didn't know Paul would get his credentials up front. So when you hear the letter to the churches of Rome, focus on the churches as much as you focus on Rome. Because it would be passed for generations. That's why we have so many copies of the New Testament. It's because before this table passed on the letter that Paul gave them, what would they probably do? Copy it. So they could hold on to it and remember what Paul taught. That makes sense? Okay, little factoid. 
Verses 2 and 3 of 1 Thessalonians 1. I have a lisp and I've had one forever. I got pulled out of third grade all the time. I hated it when they did it for Braden because he has the same thing. Braden's like, Dad, they pulled me out of class. I know, you'll get over it. I never like to preach out of Thessalonians because my tongue never feels thicker than when I have to say that word. So if I just say that letter, can you guys give me grace right now? All right, my insecurities are popping out all over the place. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your works of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God our Father. Faith, hope, love. But not just faith, hope, and love. How did he define faith? My scripture says a work of faith. Anybody got a different translation that uses a different concept there? I'm sorry? Works produced by faith? Okay, that's the second one. What does it say before that? No, that's okay. Allison, what do you got there? Works produced by faith. What translation is that? NIV? Probably 2011? Anybody got a different version? Yeah. Back and then we'll come middle. Produces action. Interesting. The work you have done because of your love. Pardon? Faithful work. Faithful work. We get the concept, right? Pretty consistent. Faith works. Is that going to be contrary to what culture has taught us? We define faith in American culture. Christian faith is what? I believe in a series of truths. That's never Paul's definition of faith. When people say, James says, faith without works is what? Dead. And people say, Paul and James are at odds. Not if you read Paul. We have turned faith into a mental list of agreements. That's not what it was. It's works of faith. Faith works. Okay? Then we have labor of love. And we don't even need to spend a second on that, do we? How about patience of hope? Should hope build patience? If it's real. I had a conversation with a lady. I did... um, Her first husband went to World War II. And they got married. This This sounds like Hollywood casting. They got married 10 days before he shipped out overseas. They went to high school together. They never dated in high school. He was being... He was drafted and was going to be sent overseas. He expressed his love for her and she married him. And the young man never came back. Three weeks into World War II, he gave his life for our country. And she was a widow, a war widow, for 20 years after the war. She felt it was disloyal to get remarried. And I said to her, we were having a conversation because the hospice called in and she asked me to do her funeral and she had a story to tell. And I'm like, I don't want to do a eulogy with the facts out of the newspaper. I want to tell your story. So I had a wonderful afternoon of eating cake, drinking tea, and hearing her story. And it was fantastic. They shouldn't have made the Titanic. They should have made this lady's story. And she said, I said, why 20 years? And then she looked at me with pride. I had suitors. (laughs) I'm sure you did. She was as cute as can be. She just wouldn't let me know. I had options. And I said, why? And she said, for 20 years, I held on to hope that they were wrong. Yeah, isn't that good? You want to talk about patience of hope. For 20 years, she waited. She said after 20 years, she figured if he lived, he didn't come back to her. 
And she was just as sweet as can be. And then she just moved on quickly. And then I met this guy and I loved him. And I thought, good for her. But she held out in hope patiently. Now here's what I want. Go to the second letter with begins with a T. And it has too many S's. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting. Sorry, I'm hearing pages turn. I'm going to let you get there. Because it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God. Your faith grows exceedingly, the love of every one of you abounds toward each other. Sounds like Ephesians 4, right? Love each other, serve each other. Your faith is growing. You're experiencing the fullness of Christ. You're understanding what it is to trust the will of God. Not my will, but yours be done. What's missing? There's three things to look for every time Paul writes an introduction. Only two are here. Hope's missing. Have you all thought about what the second letter to the Thessalonians is all about? Some teachers had gotten into the church of Thessalonica and they had convinced them that Jesus had returned and left them. So when Paul writes his second letter, what's he reminding them of? He hasn't come back. Because when he comes back, the skies are going to unroll and a trumpet's going to sound and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and my tail starts wagging. So what was he writing the second letter to call them to? Hope. See, here's the, here's the key to understanding Paul's letters. He's writing the letter to either tell them, you guys are killing it, or he's writing the letter to say, we need to fix this. Here's what's missing. And it's never an indictment until we get to the letter to the Corinthians, which I'll save for last tonight. So if you look at these two introductions, Paul's thankful for what was happening in their lives. There was evidence of it. His thanksgiving always focused on faith, hope, and love. He describes these qualities and how they were played out in the church. Works of faith, labor of love, patience of hope, work of faith, labor of love, increasing. And when Paul thanked God for faith, hope, and love in the New Testament churches, he used the plural pronoun, you or your. It's always corporate, never individual. Which is pretty cool when you think about it. Have you ever had a moment where your hope was waning? When... You got a bad prognosis from a doctor. You had something devastating happen to your family. You feel like you, you didn't know what to hope for anymore. Why is this world so jacked up and spinning right down the toilet if God's in charge? And someone around you gives you a reason to hold on. Someone around you speaks a good word. Someone reminds you the truth. Uh, I had the opportunity to go to Arkansas and speak at an Arkansas preacher's retreat uh, Monday. It started Monday afternoon and went through yesterday afternoon. And so I had the, they were out of, they were desperate and needed a speaker. So they asked me to come down and talk about a couple things. And I was talking to these preachers about how in the temptation in Matthew chapter 4, there's three basic temptations. To look good, to feel good, and to, to basically take for yourself what's not yours. So if you look at what uh, Satan tempted Jesus with, they were, they were all shortcuts. Here's some shortcuts you can take to, you know, it'll make you look good, make you feel good, and don't you deserve it after all you've gone through? And every sin answers one of those three for you if you haven't thought about it that way. And we were talking about, what do you say to the preacher who's trying so hard to be relevant 
that he actually makes himself more important than Jesus. Or he changes the word of God so that people will think he's cool and fits the time. And what do you do for the person who wants power? And what do you do for this? And the most beautiful thing, the reason I tell you that story is one of the most beautiful things. I was sitting around a room with 30 preachers. And they were, there was a guy who had been three weeks in the ministry and a guy who had been 47 years in the ministry. And what we did is I said, fellas, what word of God do we have for, for those of us in this room that are struggling with being relevant? And all of a sudden, guys just started quoting scripture. And it was scripture from the Psalms and scriptures from Paul's writings and scriptures about who Jesus was. Just reminding us our identity is not in how our audiences feel about us. It's how God feels about us. It's one of the richest things I ever did. And the entire time this was going on for about 20 minutes, I'm like, why did I talk so long? If I'd have shut up earlier, we'd have had a whole hour of just quoting scripture to each other to remind ourselves why we have our hope, why we have our faith, and why we're called to love. You can't do that alone. No devotional book in the morning with your cup of coffee equals being in a group of people who love you, who are like, no. Chad Monahan, some of you might remember him. Chad was our youth minister, and he did something wonderful and always made me uncomfortable. Now, please don't, don't accept the fact that my idiosyncrasies ruin everything. But Chad would go around the room and he'd say, hey, everybody, we're going to say something about Miss Irma. Why do you love Irma? And you'd get going around the room. Now, I protect this with all my soul, but I'm a very sentimental person, and I hate to cry. I cry more easily now at 50 than I did the entire time I was 10 and under. And we're sitting in a room, and people are just loving on you, Irma, and they're telling you how wonderful and what they appreciate about you, and you start crying, and I start crying, and we all start blowing snot bubbles, and I'm like, can we stop? And I'm thinking, that's why guys like me shouldn't lead the church, because some of us just need a Sunday where someone looks at us and says, I believe in who you are. I know this is rough, and I know your job's at risk, and I know things are hard, but I know who you are, and you're strong, and you're valiant, and you're loved by God, and you're known by His heart. And Chad taught me a whole lot in those moments, and I think he did half of them because he knew how uncomfortable it made me. It's corporate. It's never individual. Let's go, and it's measurable. That's the, the last thing I want to throw here. That I Notice that Paul isn't just saying, I think you're trying. He's saying there's evidence of it. It's measurable, exceeding faith. It's growing. You guys are growing. That's why... Um, well, I'll try to keep the family illustrations minimal. Uh, my youngest son probably grew five inches this summer. I had no clue he grew this until he walked in my parents' house. And my dad said, mercy, what happened to him? And I was like, what? And he goes, he's almost as tall as you. And I looked over at him, and I've only got him by about three inches. And this was this little four-year-old we brought here. And I was like, I see him every day, and I didn't notice it. My dad said, I haven't seen him in six months. Look at how big he's gotten. And I think in the fear of the church... We get so frustrated by how things aren't going quickly, we never say to each other, no, I remember you two years ago. You were hardly likable. But now, you have joy, and you're strong, and I actually want to hang out with you. You can't get that alone, can you? It's when I just saw Braden beam, and then he gave me that look like, I think I can take you, and I'm like, relax. I still will fight dirtier than you, so (laughs) no matter how big you are, you will fear me. All right, now let's jump 10 years ahead to when Paul's in prison. Yay, right? Yay, Paul. Paul's been imprisoned, and he writes letters to some churches. Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. We're going to leave Philippians out because it's an example of where Paul wrote to a specific need and he wasn't writing a letter of encouragement 
or instruction. So we'll take Colossians and Ephesians are very similar. Ephesians is my favorite New Testament book next to Romans. That's why if you attend here, you'll realize that I've been here now. I'm in my 10th year at the church, and we have preached through Ephesians three times, and we've preached through Romans two times, and we're going to do that every three years. We're going to preach through Ephesians. Why? Because it is a book about how to live out the resurrected life. It's the most practical of all Paul's writings, and it reminds us who we are in Christ and how to live it out. Romans sets our theology in the New Testament. What is grace? What is the law? What is the sacrifice of Christ? And what is the power of the resurrection? And why does the Holy Spirit matter? Those books are bigger and stronger and better. The others are valuable. Those are money. And I knew I wanted to work with Michael when he's like, what's your favorite New Testament book? I said, Ephesians. He's like, good. Yes, there's my brother. All right, so let's start with Colossians. Paul uh, came... uh, I'm sorry, let me start over. Paul's information about this church came from a man named Epaphras. You'll see Epaphras' name used in several of the books when Paul talks about his co-laborers. Remember the we versus the me. And he prayed for them diligently and thanked God for their maturity. Verses 3 through 5. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, always praying for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. I want to to do that again. We give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel. So, I won't ask you a ridiculous question that's clearly in front of you. Paul knew that they had faith. He knew it because they showed love. But he bases it on something interesting. The hope which is laid up for you in heaven. How you define heaven is revealing. Is heaven a distant land that one day we'll all go float on clouds? What is heaven? I just tossed that out there like someone's going to, oh, I got it. No, I want you to think, without worrying about your theology being intact completely, what, where does your head go and your heart go when you say the word heaven? Jesus. To being with Jesus. How many of you naturally slide toward an afterlife? It's okay. There's not a wrong answer. I'm just trying to feel the room here. We've been trained as Christians, right? In the sweet by and by. We will meet on what? That beautiful shore. I'm still looking for those verses. Not in the hymnal. I'm looking for them in the Bible. That is a mindset that said one day we're all going to escape this world and go to a different place up in heaven and float on the clouds. And yet my Bible tells me the exact opposite. God is going to replant the Garden of Eden here because the Bible started with the garden in the book of Genesis. It ends with the garden in the book of Revelation. And there's a tree in each one of them and there's both the tree of life. And in the middle there's a tree that a man dies on. So when we talk about heaven, what I want to do is I want to be the prophet that cries out over and over, heaven is not when you die. Heaven is the realm of God. And Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is available now. Heaven is around us if we will slow ourselves down and look for it. Wherever God is, it's holy ground, right? How many times were people told, take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. Why was it holy ground? Because God was there. Remember he told Moses... Take your shoes off before you get on my mountain. I thought that's why my grandmother always made us take our shoes off when we walked in her house. Because she'd always say, get your feet off the Davenport. And I had no idea what a Davenport was, and I realized it was a couch. But holy ground was, God's in the room. You take your shoes off. 
Because you're going to come into His presence and being barefoot reveals a form of nakedness, doesn't it? It's like I'm not protected from the bottom of my feet to the top of my head. I'm vulnerable. So when he says here, the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth, it's interesting how Paul uses this concept of heaven in his writings. Pop over to Ephesians. Please. Now, Paul's introduction is a little bit different. I've done this too. Not that I'm equal to Paul, but as a preacher I've done this. My tail gets wagging and I get excited and I jump into the thoughts before I go, oh yeah, I needed to start with this. You're going to see that Paul's introduction is lengthy. In fact, if you take verse 3 of Ephesians through verse 14, just look at the text in your Bible, if you have that available. I know if you have it on your phone, it's a little more difficult to see the span. But if you look at your Bible, verse 3 through verse uh, 11, or I'm sorry, through verse 14, those verses are one sentence. That is one major sentence. Any lawyers in the room? Because a lawyer reads those kind of sentences every day of their life. A very complex, I'm sure Mr. Harris back there has read some of these in his business dealings where he's trying to decipher what am I vulnerable to and what am I protected from. And what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 14 is he writes this lengthy letter and then, I'm joking, it's almost like, oh yeah, by the way, therefore, oh that's it. Remember, and every time you see a therefore in scripture you have to ask yourself the question, what's it there for? Everything that Paul just said is now constructed with this. I also, after I heard, he's talking about I also. In other words, all the blessings of verses 3 through 14, Paul says, I also have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, verse 18, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. So if this were my class, like a graded class, I would say in chapter 1 of Ephesians, why is Paul writing this letter? I want you to look at those three verses and tell me why he's writing the letter. Why do you write the letter? Verse 18. What's he say there? That you may know. That you may know. It's the word epigenosis. It's that you may know in the core of your being because you've experienced it. So, this cute girl with blue eyes that I met in college told me she loved me. And that meant something to me the first time she said it. And yes, she said it first. I won. She said it first. Hated that she said it first. 
lied about saying it first, but I know she said it first. I loved her beforehand, but I was scared to death to tell her because I never thought she could feel that way about me. So when she said it, I was like, nice. But 35 years later, I epigenosis, she loves me. I wanted her to love me when she first said it. I thought she was capable of loving me. Are you tracking with me the difference? This is such a practical word, but I say epigenosis, and you're like, oh, he went to the Greek. It doesn't mean I know anything. It just means that's a word, when Paul uses it, he drops the mic and says, this is not just believing one day Jesus might be good to you. He said, this is so you can experience it. Let me give you my theory on this. I think hope, well, let me start here. Love, love is a choice. Faith is trust. And hope comes from experience. Now, that's not a complete definition, but it's a working definition. It's a definition I would give to the 8th grade boys' D group that I'm a part of. That I would say to these boys, listen, if you want to experience faith, hope, and love, faith you have to trust. You know, I like to say, not to quote myself, but it makes sense in my own head, that faith is found on the other side of obedience. You know you have faith when you do what Jesus says and you live through it. Abraham raised the knife. Did he demonstrate faith? Absolutely. How do we know that? Because God had to tell him not to drop the knife. He was willing to do it. He extended faith by trusting God. What did he say to the servants at the bottom of the hill when he and Isaac went up the mountain? Does anybody know? We will be back. You thought Arnold Schwarzenegger said it first. He said, we will be back. And he was going to kill his boy. But what did he know? It says in the... I'm doubting myself now. It's either in Hebrews or Romans. It's in Hebrews 11, where it says, Abraham knew that God would bring him back if he took his life. Love is a choice. And there's a sermon for our culture today. It's not a feeling. It's not a reaction. It's not an equal opportunity engagement. It is a choice. You choose to love. And hope comes from our experience. Hope is saying God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is faithful. Each and every morning, awaken and remind ourselves. We tell ourselves the story. We remember. So he says that you may know, epigenosis, you may experience the hope of his calling. And the only way that you can experience the hope of the calling is to try it. How many of you snow skied? I know that's, I can ask that in Michigan because it snows 90% of the year. And if you want to get out of your house and not kill yourself, you go skiing. And so they took me on, the first time I ever went skiing, they took me on this little bunny hill. But unfortunately, there were a bunch of like five and six and eight-year-olds. And they were trying to ski, and they were falling down, and they were cute as can be. And here's this, at that point in time, a 35-year-old guy weighing 200 pounds on skis, and I'm trying to go down these bunny hills, and I'm scared it's going to say, Minister Squashes 3, you know, and I don't want that headline. So Heather said, she tells the story better than I do. She said, they were looking around for me, thinking I just quit and went into the lodge and got some hot chocolate. And then she said she heard me whistle, and I was on the, on the chairs going up to the top. And I'm thinking, it's easy, right? They told me there's a black diamond. Don't. There's a blue diamond in time. And then there was, I don't know what the intermediate one was, but basically it was just like a 2% incline. And they were like, just go down that hill. I came off the 
what is it, the, the chair? You can tell I'm experienced. I came off the chair and my body just took me. And there were ruts. And I got in a rut, truly. Next thing you know, heading toward a black diamond. I would not have lived, let me tell you the whole story. A guy comes by who doesn't know me at all, but he can tell I don't know what I'm doing. And he hooks my arm and takes me down the blue diamond and just turns me loose. So he hooked me and saved my life, but he didn't save much because he just sent me down. I found out later, you're supposed to go side to side. Not this kid. Speed, baby. And I remember the first time I went down a hill, Heather said it was the funniest thing she ever saw in her life. My whole ski outfit was black with purple on the elbows. And she said she just saw the father of her children like... And she said, I didn't vary. I went right down the hill. And the best part was when I got to the bottom, there was enough of clearance. I just turned my skis. It took me right back to the chair and I went up and did it again. And I did that on a loop because I didn't know how to get off. (laughs) And people say, were you scared? And I'm telling you what. I should have been, right? Everybody who's ever skied knows I could have broke my leg. I could have killed somebody. I could have run into the lodge. I would never want to learn how to ski any different than I learned how to ski. Because I didn't have time for fear and I couldn't talk myself out of it. Because I don't know how you are, I talk myself out of a lot of things. I wouldn't be good at that. Nobody would like me if I did it. And I stopped. And this guy, I don't know who he is to this day, he's kind of my angel, he just sent me down that hill. Later, some guys took me up the hill and said, no, try turning your skis this way. And then, so, first time I fell, one of them, because he said he was my friend, skied up on me and turned his skis sideways and just sloshed me with the wettest, nastiest snow, went down my shirt, and he thought he was hilarious. So the next time he fell in front of me, I thought, paybacks, pal. I went to turn my skis and had no idea how to do it, ran into him and separated his shoulder. (laughs) So, ski lessons will be given at the church starting in two weeks, right? And he still won't forgive me for that because I just I didn't know you're supposed to really press down and I just slid into him. And anyway, we took him down the hill and it was less than a fun day. Okay. So, how do you experience hope? You have moments where you look back and you go, man, I don't know how I did that. I don't know why I did that. I just did it. I experienced it. God is faithful. I don't journal. Some of you may journal. And the reason I tell you I don't journal is I don't want to be false about, here, you guys ought to try this. I try to journal regularly. I'm not as regular. I hate my own handwriting. I sometimes can't even read what I write. So I started journaling on my computer. Peter Buckland will tell you in his classes it's better to handwrite it. He's probably right. But if I want to be able to index it and find it, I'm probably a little more pragmatic. So I started journaling. What I found to do is if I go back five and ten years in my journal, and I've journaled at that time, I'm amazed at how many things I've forgotten God has done for me. I'll go back and look at 10 years. I went back when Heather was pregnant. Uh, Alex was a twin, and we lost one of them during the pregnancy. And I go back and I read that journal of that time, and I'm raising questions. I'm like, whose writings am I reading? And I'm just grateful that I remind God was faithful in every step of that. I was angry and scared, and they told us both babies were spinal bifida babies. And then all of a sudden we find out no one has passed away, so the high counts were based on the fact that that baby had died. And the doctor was like, are you guys worried? And we're like, no, we prayed that if the child couldn't live a healthy life, that God would spare it, and he did. And I look back and I read through this, and I'm thinking God's faithfulness can be forgotten tomorrow of how faithful he is today. I think that's what Paul's saying to the Ephesian church. Remember and hold on to the hope of your calling. And do your best to hold on to that. Now let's go to Corinthians. This is where I really want to land, and I've got five minutes to do it. So Paul doesn't open his letter this way. Look at the first couple verses and see if you see what I see. 
It's not there, is it? How, how or why did he start this letter this way? I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God. I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 4 through 7. He said, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. That's not one of the three, is it? The grace of God. But what's interesting is Paul's use of the word grace there is not salvation. It's not the grace that saves you. It's the gift of grace. And if you know anything about the church of Corinth, what you're going to find out is they were spiritually gifted and arrogant because of it. They practiced things like speaking in tongues and healing and prophecy, and they practiced all those things God gave them. But if you might remember, I triggered you at the beginning of the class by saying this to you, that God never gave you a gift meant to be kept. It's always meant to be given away. They were using their gifts to pump themselves up. And they were uh, elitist about it. They were divisive about it. They even turned the Lord's Supper into the haves and the have-nots. And Paul writes this letter to the church, and he challenges them in a unique way. And because I want to give this proper opportunity, here's what I want to do because of, of time. Let's go ahead and put a bookmark right here. If, you're, if you need a Bible study or you need something to do, read the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter. Just read through it this week. 16 chapters. You took two chapters a day between now and next Wednesday. And we'll start where we left off here and I can catch us up next week. But go ahead and look at that. And here's what I want you to look at. Why does Paul address to them the way he does in the first chapter that, he, that he's concerned for you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift. But He never mentions faith, hope, and the one He does mention is found in the 13th chapter. And if you read 1 Corinthians this week, you're going to find out that our use of 1 Corinthians 13 for weddings is just the tip of the iceberg. Paul is saying something so much more significant. It is good for weddings. But that's not what he's talking. He's not talking about marital love. He's talking about something completely different. Okay? Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.